With all the political drama swirling around Europe these days, Italy has had its own set of issues to deal with. Their economic growth remains disappointing and high unemployment is still a problem. And it's so sad because we have great talents who are leaving the country because they have no chance for a good job. Nobody's given up yet. Uh, we're down at the bottom, we're trying to climb, but nobody is completely negative about it. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, friends from Italy let us in on the conversations you'll hear at the cafes and dinner tables of their country. And they'll take your calls to help you plan a memorable trip to what I believe is still one of Europe's most rewarding destinations. And greet the summer solstice like they do in Scandinavia, where they're ready to light up the barbecue and dance around the Maypole to celebrate the longest days of the year. And they do some very silly dances around that pole as well, like the frog dance. Let's go to Italy and Scandinavia in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Italy is for romantics. Seeing the classics of Western civilization in person is a high point of many travelers' lives. Italy is also a fascinating conundrum of a country today. After an economic miracle helped it recover from the Second World War, lately its economic prospects inside the Eurozone are sluggish at best. And Italy's political pendulum keeps swinging at a maddening pace, with not much to show for all the commotion. We'll hear about the issues Italians are debating, plus get professional trip planning advice from three Italy-based tour guides in just a bit. We're at 877-333-7425, or you can reach us by emailing us at radio at ricksteves.com. The smell of summer's in the air, especially in Scandinavia, where late-night barbecues take advantage of the long daylight hours to celebrate being outdoors and the start of summer. For a look at how they're getting into the spirit of the solstice, let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves with Paul Johansson from Norway. Hi, Paul. Hello. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Pardon started till. Det går bra. That's all my Norwegian. <laughs> nice to have you here, Paul. Good I, to be here. You know, when you think about Scandinavia, you do think, uh, you know, the, the land of the midnight sun. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, the farther north you go, the, the brighter it is at midnight. Mm-hmm. Longest day of the year. Is that the same day every year, June? We celebrate it on the evening on the, of the 23rd of June in okay. Norway. And that's a big deal in Scandinavia. Yeah, well, but what people usually do is they get together in the evening, have a barbecue and, and light up a fire. So fire is a big part of this, huh? Fire is a big part of it, yeah. Does that go back to old, old days? Well, I, I usually say that summer solstice in, in Norway, it's a non-religious celebration uh-huh. from um, pre-Christian, Pre-Christian times, times, but we have a Christian name on it. What is the Christian name? The Christian name is Sankt Hans Aften. St. John's Evening? Yes, Evening of St. John St. John's the Evening. Yeah. So what's going on? The Christians came in and co-opted a pagan festival? Yeah, as they did with uh, Christmas also, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so the, the Vikings, they it's had just the... common um, sense if you're going to come into a country and from yeah, your religion. Yeah, you, you don't want to take away the traditions from them. Just change so the name. Just change the name. St. John's Evening Festival. Yeah. Let's party. Yeah. <laughs> what century would that have been? Oh, that would be back in the um, 11th century, more so or th- less. A thousand yeah. years ago. A thousand years ago. You Norwegians have come a long way in a thousand years. Uh, I would say so. Yeah. In the area of yeah. civilization. Yeah. Thank uh, you for doing that, <laughs> you by <welcome>. the way. <laughs> because I know there was a time when, when you were the frightening force coming down from there the north. There certainly was. And, um, but I also warned my tour members sometime that uh, you have to behave. If not, uh, the Viking in me might come out. Oh, so the Viking still survives in your DNA. Yeah, yeah sure it does. But the, for the Vikings, it's, uh, it was connected to the midsummer sacrifice. 
sacrifice, Midsummer Blut. Midsummer Blood? Midsummer Blood, yeah, more or less, uh, which was one of the big sacrifices that they had uh, during the year. Uh-huh. And um, that sacrifice took place on the 14th of July. Was that just because uh, they wanted to thank the gods for sunshine and harvest and fertility? That was a time to thank the gods, yeah. So this is the so, longest day. Let's slaughter an animal and, and make God happy. Oh, maybe even some slaves. Slaughter some slaves? Yeah, they did that oh. too sometimes. And there was a midwinter um, sacrifice. And the midwinter sacrifice, the word for that one was Yule. And we have Yule. And Yule is Christmas. Good yeah. Yule, you say. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Good Yule. Yeah, yeah. merry midwinter sacrifice. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. And that's, uh, that was done, of course, it's uh, across the, the Nordic part of Europe. You've mm-hmm. got Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Mm-hmm. Do they s- celebrate summer solstice essentially the um, same? Denmark is pretty much the same. Right. Um, they light the fire as well and have a get-together, friends, and so on. Uh-huh. In Sweden, it's another thing. It's How so? In Sweden, it's a big, big celebration. It's, it's a, a bigger it, deal. Much bigger deal. It's a national holiday, actually. So they take a day off. They take a Friday off. So, so they don't celebrate summer solstice on the same date every year. They're because very, it needs to work with the schedule. It needs to be on a Friday so they <laughs> uh, can have takes, that day that off. It takes the romance out of it. <laughs> kind of. So we're celebrating the longest day of the year, but because it's on Wednesday, yeah. we'll do it on Friday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then they dance around the maypole. Okay. It's maypole that they yeah. um, they decorate with uh, leaves and flowers and so on. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of the women, they put these uh, flower crowns on their head. And then there's a lot of uh, superstition here. If an unmarried woman, girl, sleeps with um, seven wildflowers under her pillow, uh-huh. she will dream about her future husband. Oh, now this is very important. Let's get yeah. this right. If an unmarried virgin... Yeah, well, well unmarried. In the old least, days, yeah. unmarried virgin. <laughs> if an unmarried woman yeah. sleeps with seven... Wildflowers. Wildflowers under her pillow. Yes. She will dream and she will She'll see dream about her future husband. Future husband. So it's kind of like a fertility celebration. Yeah. And, and nine months later in Sweden, there's a baby boom. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, no wonder they take the next day off. This is yeah, a very yeah, serious yeah. Uh, holiday. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Bjarne Johansson. He's a guide from Oslo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we've got Aaron in Malmo, Sweden, has sent us an email. Malmo is a beautiful town just across mm-hmm. the strait from Copenhagen. And Aaron writes, I'm an American who's been living in Sweden for the past two years. Every midsummer is spent at my Sambo's grandmother's house. So that would be his, Sambo his partner? Yeah. At my partner's grandmother's house where I've become accustomed to the Swedish traditions of the iconic midsummer pole. The half a dozen or more types of pickled herrings that people eat during the midsummer festival, mm-hmm. and just as many different types of schnapps. What are some of the Norwegian traditions that set your midsummer celebrations apart from ours in Sweden? So in Sweden, midsummer pole, lots of different pickled herrings, yes. and lots of schnapps. Yeah, and. Uh and they do some very silly dances around uh, <laughs> that pole as well, like the frog dance, for example. What's the frog dance? So both grown-ups and kids, they do this. They dance around and they sing a song about the frogs. And they bounce, and, and they like, bounce frogs? around like frogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Swedish adults are bouncing around like yeah, frogs with yeah, their yeah, kids. Yeah. Imagine you know, foreigners coming to Sweden seeing this. They would think they are totally crazy. And you Norwegians just kind of shake Yeah, we kind of shake our heads. You know. <laughs> yeah, those Swedes. <laughs> those, those Swedes. <laughs> Peace! Peace. 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 Peace.
Our guide from Oslo, Paul Bjorn Johansson, is helping us welcome in the summer solstice right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Now, Sweden, I, I know Sweden loves its pickled herrings and its akavit, its yeah. fire water. Is that a Norwegian thing also? Well, actually, Norway has better akavit than Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about this fire, because uh, I, I was reading that in Norway, they're even trying to build the, the biggest fire ever. They want yeah. to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Actually, they did it last year in a, in a small village close to Ålesund, uh-huh. split up uh, north, uh, west. north North of Bergen yeah. in a few hours, yeah. Actually, the world record was from Slovenia, uh-huh. uh, and now they wanted to beat it, so they, they built a fire that was 47 meters high, about 150 feet. 150 feet <laughs> yeah. tall? That's half a football field tall, it's, a it's fire. It's massive. It was massive. Can you look at that on YouTube or anything? I wonder. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you can. You could, yeah. That would be something. And uh, they lit it up, and now they applied for getting it into the Guinness World Record. So uh, So what are your memories of uh, fires in, in the summer solstice as a child? Oh, I remember I, um, my family getting together and uh, having good food and a lot of uh, sweets for the kids. And uh, and then later in the evening, we would uh, light the fire and we would all just stand around the fire and enjoy the long summer night. Celebrate the summer. Yeah. I love a summer night. It's a, a summer celebration. It's a sure. beautiful thing. And, yeah. and Norwegians really know how to serve up the sweets. I, I remember oh, yeah, just yeah, the yeah. love of all these different cakes and yeah. the extended family together. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Does the smell of a barbecue kind of uh, do something to you to like think there's good times happening? Yeah, it is. It's the smell of summer. Because <laughs> when I'm going through the park in Oslo, yeah, even apart from summer solstice, I, I, I can smell the, the barbecues. Yeah, the, the one-time uh, barbecues that the, we bring to the parks. That's right. You just buy these disposable yeah. grills at the, yeah. at the grocery they store. They cost like 10 kroner, one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> what would you normally cook on them? Uh, we would cook pulse. Which is uh, like hot dogs. Hot dogs, yeah. yeah. And some, some pork chops. Pork chops, nice. We'd bring some lumpe. Lumpe? Uh, which is like a potato tortilla. Because similar okay. to lefse. Lefse, yeah. But it's made, it's, uh, potato it's made bread. Of, yeah, yeah, it's kind of similar, but just uh-huh. thinner and it's round. Yeah. And we wrapped uh, the pulse, the, the hot, hot dog, in the lumpe. So you put your pulse in your lumpe. Yeah. So what are your plans for summer solstice? If you were to make the perfect summer solstice celebration, what, what are the elements um, for that? I think I had the perfect one last summer. What was so good about it? Well, um, I have a sailboat, uh-huh. uh, so um, I took some friends uh-huh. in my boat out on the fjord, and we anchored up, and um, we just sat there, had a little barbecue, some aquavit, uh-huh. and uh, we could just watch the shore as people started lighting up their, their fires. Nice. So we could, it was pretty dark, but we saw all these fires, so it was, uh, it was a nice ambience. All right. Yeah. Paul Johansson, thanks so much for giving us a chance to celebrate a little bit of Norway's summer solstice. Maybe I'll be there in Norway sometime. St. Yep. John's Eve. St. John's Eve. And uh, we can build a big bonfire. Yeah, and we'll, uh, I'll take you out on my boat. Oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> we'll have a barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tuck, tuck. If what you see and do in your travels ever brings out the inner poet, you can write us a haiku about it. We might even use it on the air someday. Here's what some of our traveling listeners have written to describe what they've been up to lately. James Conroy from Sigourney, Iowa, remembers what it felt like to wake up at a bed and breakfast in Italy. Wake to new smell dawn. Strange tongue clangs pans of breakfast. 
Tuscany beckons. Dentro la tasca di un qualunque mattino, dentro la tasca di porterei. Elliot Fulner from Wisner, Nebraska, came up with this haiku after visiting the northwest of Germany. Gardens aplenty, old-fashioned farms and houses, how I'd hate to leave. Beth Shorstein from Jacksonville, Florida, sends us a haiku about being in Ireland on June 16th in time to celebrate Bloomsday on the streets of Dublin. Bloomsday in Dublin. Straw hats, dresses sweep the streets. Slancha, to your health. And Bridget Horn of Bellevue, Washington, traveled to Belgium with her children and loved the food. Chocolate, waffles, fries. Belgium feeds my inner child while I sip great beer. You've got something I want Something I have long been without It's the key that opens heaven's front door It's the dream come true that I'm wishing for Three friends from Italy join us next. They'll share what they find are the challenges facing their country these days. And they'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help plan your vacation to the home of so much of the Western world's immortal art, culture, and history. We'll look for La Dolce Vida. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can dislike Italy if you really want to. Everyday life can be so messy and chaotic, noisy and exasperating. But if you decide to let yourself just go with it, you may also find that a trip to Italy can become one of the most vibrant, charming, and exhilarating experiences of your life. To help us get in tune with today's Italy and to help you plan a great Italian getaway, we're joined now by three longtime professional tour guides. They each specialize in navigating the challenges of Italian bureaucracy and infrastructure to show visitors the pleasures, treasures, and realities of Italy. Nina Bernardo left Cleveland more than 20 years ago to study in a land her family came from, and she's lived there ever since. Anne Long was a student from Chicago who also remade her life in Italy. And Cecilia Botai's family has been producing Orvieto Classico wine now for generations in hilly Umbria. That's between Rome and Florence. Anne, Nina, and Cecilia, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Now, Nina and Anne, you're both American expats, and Cecilia, your family's been in Italy forever. Give us just a little background on your story. Uh, Anne Long, how did you end up in, in Italy, and what's your situation now? I came to the south of Italy in, uh, 37 years ago, a six-month break to learn the language, to try to decide what to major in it after I'd changed several majors and ended up staying there 37 years. So I got married to an Italian, uh, I have a son, and I've settled in Sorrento. Right. And how do you like Sorrento? I love Sorrento. It's a big town feel with a little town atmosphere. Nice. That's the Limoncello country, Limoncello. a beautiful resort an hour south of Naples. Cecilia Botai, tell us about your world in, in Umbria. I was born and raised in Florence, actually, because my father's family is from Florence. Okay. I can say was at this point. And then when I was 30, I decided to move to the winery that's been in my family since many generations, even before Italy was a country that wasn't the family already. My mother is from Rome, 
but she lives on the winery now. And I, I go back and forth Rome and the winery because I have a Calabrian husband who lives and works in Rome. Yeah. So I You've got see. all of the different regions covered there and you've got a, like a paradise. You're on a bluff overlooking the beautiful hill town of Orvieto. Yeah, and I like it that way because I can get tranquil at the winery. I can like the stress in Rome and I can track back my mom's story. So it, it's interesting. And that gives me a possibility not to be always in the same pace. And you welcome travelers to your estate? Uh, Absolutely. We love to have them to the estate, even because when you think about something or hear about something, it's not like being in person in the place. And they learn about the Italian family's lifestyle in the countryside. So we are in the fields, literally speaking, and we cover several aspects of the life. You can sort of feel the... Um the salt-of-the-earth lifestyle in the countryside, just one hour north of Rome. Nina Bernardo, tell us your story. I came to Italy in 1996 after graduating university to have one-year adventure abroad and get direction in my life, and I'm still there trying to get direction in my life 20 years later. 20 years later. It's an interesting place to try to get direction from from Rome. (laughs) From Rome, right, yeah. All right, well, you're close to the Vatican if there's any help there. (laughs) And you're also close to the Italian government. How many different governments have they been since you moved there? Of at least 25 or so, 25. probably more. than They average about a year and a half as their lifespan, so and then if, they like to change things up. I mean, there's a lot of tumult in the uh, American political uh, situation right now. From an Italian point of view, you've been living in tumult. Uh, any advice? Well, as soon as our president came onto the scene, my Italian friends wanted to talk about all the parallels between their ex-prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, and what was happening in the U.S. Uh-huh. And after he got elected, they all came and said, we understand what you're going through and finally, the world can laugh at somebody else and not just us. But they also recognize the seriousness of it because 20 years later, they're living his aftermath. And in Italy? Yes. Well, that's interesting. Berlusconi was quite a bombastic and um, authoritarian and corrupt politician, I think you could say, populist. Uh, what is the fallout 20 years later? How does he impact your country today? I think when you bring down the level of political discourse and you legitimize certain ways of speaking or being or being corrupt with impunity, that can happen on a low level. But once it happens at the highest level and that becomes an example for everyone, then that example doesn't go away and then everyone feels justified. It sort of legitimizes it because Italians have long had a playful or disrespectful approach to women's respect issues and so on. Gender issues are problematic in Italy. Sure, of course, but Berlusconi is partly responsible for that, bringing down the level of political discourse, but also not helping advance gender equality in Italy. I mean, I would say he's put a a roadblock there. So there's a lasting heritage of disrespect from a leadership of Berlusconi. I don't think that goes away overnight. I think most of the Italians that I speak with with, would say the, the exact same thing. It's the legacy that's worse because that affects generations. You can't people, just elect another leader and say, okay, No, because people was... have grown up right. with that as an example. Anne Long, from your point of view, what's the good news in Italy? The good news is that they've still got hope that they can come out of the economic downturn. Nobody's given up yet. We're down at the bottom, we're trying to climb, but nobody is completely negative about it. You're at the bottom because of economic problems? Economic problems, government problems, uh, discord amongst... Corruption is... Corruption has always been a problem. The the saddest thing I learned on my last trip to Rome was that many fine families aspire for their oldest son just to get into the public service so he can never be fired. 
Right, and it's, we still have arranged marriages where you don't want the family money to go out of their hold, so they'll marry somebody with money. How is this, Cecilia? You know, this, this whole idea that a, a very blessed family with wonderful education and all sorts of connections, they set the bar that low to be just a government worker because there's job security there. Is that a reality? That, unfortunately, it is in many, many cases. I absolutely agree with many ideas that were brought up into this conversation. The problem that we have in Italy is the mentality of the people. This is what really gives us great problems. What, what is that mentality? The mentality is I need to get the best out of the less I give. So like people claiming for a job in the government because they can't be fired, uh, they can't stay home long. If they have an injury, like you break a leg, you're an entrepreneur. One week later, you are in front of your computer with a broken leg. So people have been demoralized into thinking it's just every man for himself. And what I want to do is game the system and get more out of it than I put into it. Absolutely. This is especially in the government businesses, in the government jobs. Mm -hmm. There is a big difference between the people who are working for themselves and mm -hmm. the people working for the government. I call them the termites who will eat our economy. Because if you multiply that by the number of people we have, and then we have people in politics who are not politicians. I might not be in agreement with some politicians of the very past, but they were politicians, they were professionals. Mm -hmm. Now we have people who manage televisions and they come in politics like Berlusconi. And we have people who used to be talk show men and they're in politics. And to be in politics is a profession. It's something you need to study. So how do these talk show personalities actually come into power in Italy? How, how is it that somebody with no political experience and no uh, aptitude for this can be find himself controlling the government? Because many talents were fed up with corruption, which we still have in large amount, let's say, spread out in so the it's country. it's a, a protest against the Yeah, it's the a corrupt. protest, uh, but I'm not talking about one person. Mm -hmm. And then another one, if you look at the curricula of these people, you realize that they never started it. So we had in the past, people were professionals. And now we have anybody, let's go do politics. And this is really, in my opinion, this trifle. In my opinion, I never vote for the party. I vote for the person. Right. If it's a professional person, I'm sure that sooner or later this person will get to a right solution. Okay. But if it's not a professional, it's important for the Italians that the politician is a honest person. I agree. But a honest person who is not a surgeon is not a person I will give my body for an operation to. This is the point. Mm -hmm. So, and, and on top of that, the Italians only care for getting money, getting money, doing the less effort possible. And if you do too many efforts sometimes, you are the devil because you, this way, show how much the others don't do. So it's dangerous. So people are in a difficult situation because if you want to blow the whistle on this kind of uh, bad ethics and this corruption, you become public enemy number one. Absolutely. Wow. Cecilia Botai, Anne Long, and Nina Bernardo are getting us acquainted with an insider view of Italy today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll open the phones at 877-333-RICK in just a bit for them to answer your travel questions about visiting Italy this year. When we think of the, the, the chaos in Italy, and I think it's fair to call it chaos. Uh, again, Nina, you've been in Italy for... 20 years 20, now. And how many governments? I don't know, 10. More, 10 a lot. A lot of governments. Lot. And... Uh, Renzi was just sort of the wunderkid, it seemed like. Everybody was excited about this. Well, he was a self-styled wunderkid. young guy from Florence, and suddenly he's in charge of the country, and now he's gone. Is the chaos of Italy's national government because of stubborn regionalism, or is it because of pervasive uh, cronyism and corruption? 
I would say it's more has to do with pervasive cronyism and corruption. And I would also say that it's kind of a skewed thing to say that, oh, they've had over 60 governments because oftentimes they just reshuffle their cabinet members and it's officially a new government, but it's the same people who've okay. been in charge. Americans have to remember you've got a parliamentary system where right, there will exactly. never, almost never be one party in power. It's always right, a coalition. Right, it's always a coalition. It's always a coalition with a prime minister and a coalition, right? And, and when I say cronyism, there's even a word in Italian for cronyism, uh, cronyismus, right? <laughs> There's clientelismo. Clientelismo, what is that? So when you're giving out, like Cecilia was explaining before, when you're giving out positions because someone owes you a favor or has done you a favor or has brought you votes, so not necessarily because they have the right experience, it's still not a society where your advancement is based on your merits. On your merits. A meritocracy, instead it's a client, what is the word? Clientelismo. Clientelismo. And Lung, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's a fact that, you know, the young kids that are coming out of university, we've got 40% unemployment for the kids. They can go and have as much education as they possibly can, and they will never find a job if they don't know someone. And it must be so negative. It must be so uh, demoralizing. De- demoralizing you got all, you, you've dedicated yourself to a great career. You've got great education. You studied and if you're not, if your family's not connected, right? If you don't know the right people, you're not going to get into your field. Some of them, you know, they would have to move to get in. The Italians don't move unless you put a bomb underneath of them. But the ones that are out there trying to find something in the field that they've studied, they're having a terrible time. And the government isn't helping with getting jobs going for the young. That the old people are staying in. In that, Italy, they call it raccomandazione, so a recommendation. But they use that concept for everything. If you need to have work done on your house, you don't look in the phone book for who's the closest plumber. You right. call your friends and say raccomandazione. Yeah, who's, I fell in love with a little uh, a little tiny house in uh, Civita di Bagnareggio, and I wanted to buy that. It was like really cheap, and it was going to be my wonderland in, in the middle of uh, Italy. But then I thought the reality is to get anything fixed, to get a lawyer, to get anything solid, you got to know the system. Right. you, you got to have a family that's been there as long as Cecilia's. Right. Not, not the system. You, don't, you have to know somebody. You have to know and somebody. And he or she will fix everything. That's the way it is. And it's so sad because we have great talents who are leaving the country because they have no chance for a good job a or a drain. decent job. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the, the government says, oh, we need to fix that. We need to stop that kind of uh, immigration. Mm-hmm. But they don't do anything to, to stop it. Well, the charms of Italy must really be strong, Anne Long and Nina Bernardo, for you to s- choose to stay there. Because there's a lot of frustrations in the day-to-day mechanics of life. But it's still apparently... It's still it's worth a, it. Yeah, it's a challenge more than anything else. <laughs> if you don't get to have a good sense of humor about it, then it, you're going to go running with your hands in your hair. This, so This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about going to Italy without having uh, your hair on fire here. <laughs> and uh, our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mike's calling in from Kent in Washington. Hi, Mike. Hi, Rick. My wife and I are going to Italy this year for the first time, and... We uh, haven't been. Uh, We've uh, been to several countries in Europe, um, and we were looking for a town to spend four or so days in that wasn't overwhelming, something like maybe Dingo or Bacharach, and I was just wondering if you had any suggestions. So uh, it's your first time to Italy. You want to have four days to have a little break between big cities? Is that the right idea? Uh, Actually, we're staying in Vernazza for... 
several nights and Montepulciano for several nights, and we're looking for something in between the two. Okay, so you're staying on the Riviera, and then in the Italian Riviera, and Vernazza, and then you're going down to Montepulciano, which is in the wine country. That's a beautiful wine country south of Siena. And uh, you want to have like four days in a relaxing place in between. Cecilia, do you have an idea? Well, actually, I would have an idea. This is where I live. Orvieto could be, it's a, it's a town. Mm-hmm. So it's not as small as Montepulciano. It's not as big as a city and has very good connections in terms of transportation roads. Mm-hmm. But you need to drive, I guess. Or you need to be uh, tranquil on a bus for maybe one hour and a half to get to a little town that you could reach with a 20 minutes drive back up. And that could be an opportunity because this is a town where you can sit down, watch the locals, interact mm. with the locals, get to the market. And uh, it's not too small. It's not too big. Mike, I love Orvieto. I just think it's one of the greatest places. It's got tourism, but it's all the tourism's all gathered right near the cathedral. And it's uh, got must have 20 wonderful restaurants. It's got uh, beautiful walks around. And it's got a direct train connection to Rome. You could side trip into Rome for the day. You could save a lot of headaches and a lot of money by sleeping in Orvieto and taking the train into Rome. Yeah, it's an hour train. Actually, we have many people who work in Rome that commute every day by train. So that's really perfect. We will have a car, so um, it doesn't sound like that'd be too hard to get to. Oh, that's great. No, and like, there's a massive free car park just by the train station at the base of the hill town. Yeah. And, and you, you have... just leave your car there, and you ride the funicular, get up to the top of the hill town. And I'll tell you, there's so much art and culture and beautiful cuisine in Orvieto. Uh, I love walking. There's literally a, a little park at the base of the cliff that goes all the way around the town. Uh, it's honeycombed with Etruscan tunnels and lots of interesting things to see in Orvieto. And you've got a, a wonderland of, of uh, side trips from there. Nina or Anne, do you have an, another idea other than Orvieto that might be interesting for Mike? I would suggest Bologna. It's just an hour north of Florence. It's manageable. The historic center is charming. Um, you can easily get to some smaller towns, do day trips to Modena or Parma from there. And, yeah, and Bologna food. is right on the axis there, so you're just an hour from yeah. Venice and an hour from Florence and right. an hour from Milan. So positioned very well. Yeah, that's a good idea for a bigger town, Bologna. And uh, Bologna is uh, it's great for cuisine. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of known classic. as the kitchen of Italy. They like to call it the kitchen of Italy. The kitchen of Italy. You know, and another town, if you're interested, Mike, I really like Volterra, which is sort of a dark and brooding hill town without much tourism, and it's just a couple of hours south of the Cinque Terre on your way, uh, you know, down to Montepulciano. So Volterra would be my favorite classic hill town. And uh, Orvieto is another good one. And, uh, and of course, you've got Siena, just w- a couple of hours north of Montepulciano. Or uh, Luca. And Anne is talking about Luca. Describe yeah. Luca for us. Luca is a walled city, completely walled city, excellent condition. And so you've got inside the city wall and outside the city walls. So hotels in or out, and also smaller villages around Luca that you can find bed and breakfasts and things like that. Uh, perfect for cars. I'm sure there's plenty Luca of places. Luca has this uh, early modern history uh, wall, what, in 17th century? 1600s, it was 1600s finished. 1600s wall that is uh, more squat and broad. And today, of course, there's no military purpose for the wall, so it's a park. And it's got a, it's like a pathway and a bike lane. And yeah. you can rent a bike and Jogging, bike around the city on, on top of its wall. And a fun thing about Luca, L-U-C-C-A, is there's a, a public bus that goes from downtown Luca right to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So you can go out and check out Pisa in less and it's than a an direct, hour. And it's a direct line to Florence, too. If they want to go in and spend the day in Florence, you don't have yeah, to take the car. Very good idea. Well, there you go, Mike. You got some ideas. Volare. 
tutto di blu felice di stare lassù e volavo volavo felice più in alto del sole ed ancora più su There's more just ahead with Anne Long, Nina Bernardo, and Cecilia Botai as they help you get ready for the trip of a lifetime to Italy. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll walk the medieval streets of a Tuscan hill town in just a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting personal travel advice from three tour guides from Italy. Cecilia Botai divides her time between her family winery near Orvieto and her apartment in Rome. Anne Long is an American who went to study in Italy, married one of the locals, and has made her home above the slopes of Sorrento ever since. And Nina Bernardo is also an American expat who left the Midwest to study in Italy, and she's called it home now for more than 20 years. She also lives in Rome. Michelle emails us from Cranston in Rhode Island, and she writes, My husband and I spent the month of July living in an apartment in the heart of Bologna, just outside the historic city. We feel we experienced the true Italy by living alongside Italians in that city, which has minimum tourism, no crowds, few tourists, great central location for visiting nearby seaside towns, and the Aegean Sea. That sounds like a person that really enjoyed Bologna. Cecilia, mm-hmm. any other ideas about Bologna? Well, Bologna, it's an interesting city because it's a university city. Mm-hmm. It's the main city in one of the richest regions in Italy where people are very active. Mm-hmm. So, And they like to interact with the people. They are very open. So it's easy to get in touch with the local, to speak with the locals. And close by Bologna, you have other interesting towns, like you have Parma, you have uh, Piacenza. So it's a very good location and also very close to Florence. So that's a city that has more history than people ever know. They have a great cuisine tradition. And And it falls in the shadow of Florence and Venice, so tourists don't go there. I've never been there because I'm always going to Florence. And I think people just love Bologna, so it's on my list also. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Bernardo, Anne Long, and Cecilia Botai about Italy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Catherine's calling from Pittsburgh. Catherine, buongiorno. Um, I'm going to be traveling to Italy in the next year, and I'm a personal chef, so I'm a, a real foodie. This is my first time going to Italy. I'm going to Milan, Venice, Rome, and Florence. I've traveled around Europe. I studied in Spain for a year in college, so I have familiarity with, you know, Mediterranean cuisine. But in Italy, I wanted to know what would be the three top, like, food experiences, like either cooking class or in the areas that I'm traveling to, what what would you recommend? You know, I know for a lot of tour guides, it's so much fun to bring the group to a actual cooking class. Anne, have you brought your yeah. groups to a cooking class? There's cooking classes all over Italy, and, of course, Italy is so diverse in its cuisine. You can't say yeah. that one is better than the other. You can do one-on-one with a chef, of course, which costs more. You can do a class where it's maybe five, ten people. You can do a two-hour class. You can do a full-day class. You can do a week a study where you go out and do the shopping every day and then fix something for lunch. So you really have to kind of narrow it down to your time limits and then start doing some research to see uh, so there are what cooking, you're cooking for. classes for tourists in English where you dedicate yes. half a day to shopping and cooking and then, Eating. from my experience, you eat it. Eat it, that's and right. And it is so much right. fun to actually prepare it, cook it, and then eat it. And if, right. if you're a person like me that... that, that really is not much of a cook. It is so much fun to have that help to be so steep on the learning curve and see what you made is more than edible. It's as good as what you'd find maybe even in a restaurant. Something else that's really, really popular are food tours. 
and I, I've they're sprouting taken, like mushrooms. Every the city trendiest has thing and dozens mm-hmm. of companies that are doing with them. I would say in Venice, the the great thing to do is a chiketti pub crawl because they do a lot of snack mm-hmm. food in Venice. So and what yeah. is chiketti? Chiketti are like little tapas. Think of them as Venetian tapas. So going from bar to bar and ordering one or two snacks with a glass of wine. That's a cultural thing to do in Venice. It's unique to Venice, I think, right. and and uh, it's it's a good way to kind of connect with the local culture and. Uh, Let's see. So in Venice, it'd be a food crawl. In uh, Florence, I think it could be cooking school. In Rome, I would take Anything a food. I would yeah. take a food tour in Rome. I've done it in Trastevere, mm. and I've done it in Testaccio. Tes- Testaccio. And they're both great tours. And Testaccio, Cecilia, Testaccio was sort of like the pantry or the the food supplier of ancient Rome. And and to this day, it's got that heritage, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Testaccio has become very popular now. It's a place that is still more local than other areas. I still like Trastevere very much, but Mm -hmm. Testaccio is more to the earth, I would say. It's earthy, right? Yeah, it's earthy. And uh, you get there a lot lot of cuisine opportunities because in Rome, you have to think that all the cultures of Italy gather together. Mm -hmm. This is the city where everybody wants to go, especially if you are a teenager. When you do university, Rome is the city where you want to study. And you have all kinds of Italian gathering together. Mm -hmm. And I call Italy the United States of Italy. So you have there the chance to get all the food of Italy and the best food is the Roman food. Okay, so now this is so fun. I thought at first your question was so um, broad, but we're coming together. Florence, it's going to be take a a cooking class. In Rome, Mm -hmm. you're going to take a food tour of of one of the colorful neighborhoods, Testaccio or... Or Testavery would be the ones that we would recommend. In Venice, you're going to have your tapas crawl, your pub crawl, called the Cicchetti. And in Milano, you've got the—Milano is a city of bankers and and elegant, wealthy people, and everything is gift-wrapped with style. And I would go to Mm -hmm. a fancy— a bar and have the aperitino. Uh, aperitivo. Aperitivo. That's or right. Apericena, they call That's it. That's what I was confusing the, the aperitivo. Yeah. Yeah. Tell so, me about the aperitivo because I think it started up in Milano and now it's all oh, over Milan Italy. Oh, Milan does it better than any other city in Italy. And you go and you have it's a before dinner drink, but now they do um, a whole buffet of different kinds of food and it's such a heavy buffet that you could make it a dinner. So, so it's the, Apericena. It's, the, it's okay. the happy hour tradition called Aperitivo. Yeah. Aperitivo, uh, not the chain of the aperitivo. aperitivo. So aperitivo, where you'd you'd buy a, a cocktail or a spritz, and then you would have all the munchies that they put out there to entice people to stop by there. And now the fun budget travel sort of uh, distortion of that is the mixing of the word aperitivo and cena, which means dinner. Aperitivo. A lot of young people do it because mm-hmm. it's a cheap evening out, and they can socialize for hours. Mm. So for ten euros, you know, ten or twelve dollars, what could you get? Nina? You could get a drink and a full dinner, and you're out for the evening with your friends. So that's a great way to just mix with the locals because everybody does it. I have a nephew great. who lives and studies. He's finished now with university. He's twenty five, and when he goes out for dinner, it's always an aperitivo or an apericena mm-hmm. because really you get a plate. You what, pay ten euros. What would euro. be on the plate? What would you eat? Oh, you have a buffet and you choose what you want. So, so there's th- pasta, there's sandwiches. There's pasta, you have sandwiches, you have different kinds of omelets, you have veggies, you have uh, pâtés, you have cheeses. So you buy basically the opportunity to fill the plate and a drink and you can stay in the place as long as you want. So it's a very nice way to have different sorts of food and uh, to socialize with the people, to have a nice glass of whatever you like to drink and it's not expensive. Can you go back for seconds? Yeah. Uh, you have to pay another aperitivo usually. <laughs> Especially in Milan, they're a little strict about it. So in, in a lot of they're towns... They're not so strict they, in Rome. They put out the buffet and people gather around and it's the students and the, the workers and the bohemians that come there and they have a nice cocktail and they can scrounge dinner out of it. 
Other places, like Il Campo in Venice, you just sit down and, and order your drink with this great view, and it's not a cheap drink, but it'll come with uh, a couple of small plates just as a... Right. As a the, the drink is always associated with food. They would never serve you an mm. alcoholic beverage without food with it. So as soon as you mm. order anything with alcohol, you get a little chance of tasting. And the smaller the place, the better the food. There you go, Catherine. Thanks mm. for your call. Okay. It sounds delicious. Grazie. Prego. Okay. Have a good time. <laughs> okay. Three professional tour guides who make their living showing Americans the highlights of their home turf in Italy are helping you plan a trip to Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can share your own tips for enjoying Italy by posting to our online listener forum. There's a link from the main page at ricksteves.com radio. Claire's calling in from Roseville in California. Hi, Claire. Hi, how are you? We're doing great. We're getting stoking our appetite after that last call. My mouth is watering. It was wonderful to listen to. And what's your question or comment for our guests? Well, thank you. I am I'm going to Italy. been a, several times, but I'm going to be moving around a lot more than, than I've done before. And I just wanted to know the reliability of the trains. Um, it seems to me one time I was in the CC and trying to make connections, and it was just sort of not so good. How are things now with the train system, going from Rome on up Siena, Luca, Let's Pisa. ask our Americans who've been there for 20 or 30 years, because if you think back a long time ago, it was crazy. But, uh, Anne, how do you find the trains now? Uh, it was complete chaos years ago. Now we have the Eurostar, and the Eurostar, they get penalized if they're late. Mm. You know, people can start getting refunds if they're at more than a half an hour late. Mm-hmm. So they really are very good with being on time. And there are so many of them connecting the major cities, north to south. Now, you know, my favorite tip, Claire, in Italy is to remember the printed schedule. You don't want to rely on that entirely. What you want to do is look at the electronic schedule that's up to date, up to the very moment. And there'll be, ah. a, there'll be a TV monitor. And there's two words, uh, departures. Yeah, and, uh, partenze and arrivi. So arrivi means arrivals, and partenza would be departures. So you're looking for the TV monitor that says... Partenze. Partenze. And then, if you see exactly on that what's happening, that is the definitive truth at this moment. And the cool thing about that is, you may be 10 minutes late for your train, and sure enough, it's it's arriving in two minutes, and it'll say they're on the departure board. Or, you may be half an hour early, and you're thinking, oh, nuts, I should have planned it a little better. But then you realize the previous train that you didn't even try to catch was also late, and it's coming in right now. So, you look on that board, and you'll see what's canceled, what's early, what's late, and so on. Uh, the Italians are also a lot more organized in terms of their tickets, and if you're doing the high-speed trains, you can book everything online. So you travel mm. paperless, and it makes things really super easy. And also, you don't have to worry about train strikes if you're traveling on the high-speed trains, because okay. they normally don't participate in the strikes. It's usually oh, the regional that's, trains. That's good to know. That's so if you're traveling from big know. city to big city on a high-speed train, you're normally safe with your travel plans. Got it. And Rick, what would you recommend? I've never done the Eurail Pass thing. Just never has worked for me. You've said, you know, if you're doing this, it's probably better off just going on on your own. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for going from Rome on my way up to Milan uh, over a several-day period of time? You know, you're probably going to find that the prices are very reasonable just to buy the point-to-point tickets. Uh, That's what I thought from from reading your book. Yeah, you have to travel a lot to justify the purchase of a particular pass. Uh, So if you're traveling all over Europe for three weeks in a row, sure, look into that. But um, right. just uh, like Nina said, go online and, and book your ticket, and uh, you'll be surprised how inexpensive it is. You can pay 50% more to go first class, 50% more per kilometer, uh, but okay. you'll, you'll find the new Italian trains are, are really 
almost shocking in, in how comfortable and reliable they are. Wonderful. I am so excited. I can't yeah. thank you enough. Uh, Cecilia has one more comment. Yeah, there is also another company uh, for the main cities, which is called Italo. So if you don't have a seat in Tren Italia, you can go with the other company, which is Italo. Mm-hmm. And again, as Nina said, they are quite often, no, I wouldn't say they don't strike very much. If there is a national strike, they usually run anyway. And if you travel in the weekends, they very often give you the ticket to go back and forth for the Round, round trip, trip for the, for the at the cost of one, of, of one way. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has helped so much. Thank you all. Thanks for your thank call. You. Thank and you. And have okay, a great thanks. trip. Bye bye. I sure will. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with three uh, friends and fellow tour guides from Italy: Nina Bernardo, Anne Long, and Cecilia Botai. Nina, Anne, and Cecilia. To finish off, um, you're right up to date in Italy. Things are changing all the time in Italy. I'd like you to think of just one bit of news, something new for the traveler that we should be mindful of when we go to Italy next. We'll start with you, Anne. I think the availability of English is really, I mean, 37 years that I've been there, it's absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. You you can do so much between Wi-Fi, between the people that uh, so the language work. barrier the language barrier is disappearing. All right, and Cecilia, what's something new that we should know about as we sightsee in Italy? Well, uh, people are now more used, even in the in the more remote areas, they are more used to have non-Italian people around. So it's easier to communicate with them, to get in touch with them, to s- spend some time with them. So it's a sort of a more tranquil feeling that you get. So the cities are as intensive as ever, but the countryside is a warm welcome, and to actually experience that is quite reasonable. Absolutely, yeah. Nina? I know it's hard to believe, but Italy is actually modernizing, so it's easier to make online reservations for museums, whereas before you always had to stand in line. You can do a lot of things ahead of time to be really efficient with your time if you're going to travel there, and, and then save some headaches when you get there. And in Italy, the stakes are higher than, than anywhere else. Anywhere else. Right. So, if, so it if really you, plays to plan ahead. You get enough the cruise ship in Civitavecchia coming into Rome with one day. If you have not done your homework, you will not get into the Colosseum, you will not get into the Sistine Chapel or That's the Vatican right. Museum, and you won't get into the Forum, but you can make Make reservations quite easily. Right. You can do a lot of things online now. And then you walk right by all those crowds. Anne, Cecilia, Nina, Mille Grazie. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a favorite small town in Italy? Cameron Hewitt does. It's a medieval hill town a little southeast of Siena. Cameron is my senior researcher at Rick Steves Europe, and he joins us right now to tell us about his favorite town in Tuscany. My favorite Tuscan hill town is Montepulciano. It's not just fun to say Montepulciano, it's also particularly charming. And here, more than anywhere else, I really feel connected to the heritage of a living town. Hi, I'm Cameron Hewitt. I'm about to walk down a 100-yard stretch of Montepulciano's Main Street. And along the way, I'll visit three craftsmen, each one with a fierce passion for doing just one thing and doing it better than anyone. First, I step into a wine cellar called Cantina Contucci. Adamo greets me with fanfare. Allora, io mi chiamo Adamo sì. e sono il maestro del vino nobile di Montepulciano. Da quanti anni è che faccio questa professione? È da 60 anni. Adamo speaks no English, but he doesn't seem to notice. In his rapid-fire Italian, he explains that he's been making wine here since he was in short pants. He officially retired 20 years ago, he tells me, 
but they still let him come to work every day. E la specialità di Montepulciano è il vino nobile. Questo vino è un vino famosissimo perché è un vino antichissimo. Adamo shows me the warren of cellars where he ages the robust red vino nobile di Montepulciano. His voice echoes off of the huge wooden casks and the rustic Gothic vault. When it comes to his wine, Adamo is not just enthusiastic, he's evangelical. Each cask is an old friend. Finally, Adamo pops a cork and pours some in my glass. He won't let me leave until I fully appreciate his life's work. Just a few steps downhill, I hear a clang of metal against metal. It's coming from a cluttered time warp of a workshop. A coppersmith named Cesare is hunched over an anvil. An actual anvil, like from the Roadrunner cartoons. Cesare invites me in and shows me his hammered copper pots, lovingly crafted with fine details. In this case, for her and her sister, one, two, three, four grandchildren. Okay, yes, yes, thank you. Cesare, I guess flattered by my interest, declares that he will make me a gift. He pulls out a set of tools that he inherited from his father, who inherited them from his father, and so on. He lays a copper disc onto his anvil and then lovingly dents it with floral patterns, my wife's initials, and our wedding date. When I try to pay him, he refuses. I get the sense that, like Adamo, Cesare is not in this for the money. He just loves to share his passion for his craft. A few steps farther is a lively trattoria. It's lunchtime and it is packed. Here comes Giulio, tall, lanky, with flyaway white hair. Giulio's passion isn't wine or copper, it's grilling the perfect steak. Giulio makes his rounds. He pulls up a chair at each table and talks his customers through their options. Someone orders a steak. Giulio walks up the seven steps at the back of the restaurant to a giant slab of beef on a butcher block. First, Giulio gently saws his way through the soft flesh. Then he swings a giant cleaver to hack the rest of the way through. He slaps the T-bone on a sheet of paper and brings it to the customer's table. They nod in approval. Giulio pushes the hunk of beef deep into a wood-fired oven. He doesn't ask you how you want it done. This is Tuscany. It's rare. Seven minutes on one side, seven minutes on the other side, sprinkled with coarse salt. That's how it's done. In Montepulciano, you meet people who can't stop working just because they're retired. People who value appreciation more than money. People who find their niche in life and fill it with gusto. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Gretchen Strauch for reading this week's Travel Haiku. You can listen again anytime you like and search our archives in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with downloadable walking tours for many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it at ricksteves.com radio.